Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Hello and welcome back to our podcast. Today's episode's guest is Alisa Sapersky. Alisa is a writer, a coach, a speaker, and a childhood sexual abuse survivor advocate. She's the author of Healing Honestly, The Messy and Magnificent Path to Overcoming Self-Blame and Self-Shame, the first survivor-to-survivor book to support people healing from childhood sexual abuse from a major publisher since 1988. Healing Honestly has been praised for its candid, funny, and compassionate approach to healing from sexual violence. Alisa is the founder of HealingHonesty.com, where she writes about her experiences as a millennial woman trying to live a full life while healing from her abuse with a community of over 500,000 other survivors from around the world. Along with offering coaching programs, Alisa travels the country speaking at college campuses and conferences to support survivors and the people who love them. Her work has appeared in Teen Vogue, Allure, and Hey Alma. It is my pleasure to welcome Alisa. Hey. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, let's just get started. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just get going and share with our listeners how I found, found you. You know, I was doing some research on Freud and uh, generally uh, abuse, uh, traumas, uh, came to sexual abuse. And then saw this really cool, interesting article and started reading it and kind of pulled me in. And I was like, wow, this is really cool. I wonder who this person is. I realized it was you. And uh, that also you had written a book called Healing Honestly. Um, the Messy and Magnificent... It's a tongue twister. The messy. <laughs> I get caught on it too and it's my book. <laughs> Isn't it yeah. funny? The Messy and Magnificent Path there we go. to Overcoming self-blame and self-shame. And That's I right. just thought, I want to explore this topic with someone like yourself, uh, because I do feel that it relates to diagnoses, uh, mental disorders, psychology, psychiatry, and all that good stuff. And so I hope our listeners will get some value and maybe some reflections on things that might have happened in their families and how it affects their children today. So um, I'm going to not paraphrase because I'll butcher what you said in this article, but it was an article on Freud's theory or one of his theory, many theories and the cover up or sort of a rebuttal, right? So maybe we can start yeah. there. And uh, again, I'm, I'm so excited to have this conversation. Yay. <laughs> I'm so, I was so glad to hear from you too, because um, I get a lot of outreach through my website, healinghonestly.com but not always about this article. And I think it's really fascinating. And I think if more people understood the history of Freud's relationship to childhood sexual abuse survivors, um, it would be so useful because the impact is still being felt today. So on my website, I like to take these ideas that feel like really maybe heavy or inaccessible and, 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 and like not really approachable and 
talk about them in conversational tones and with moments of levity when possible. And so um, the article you refer to is really me telling the story that Jude, Dr. Judith Herman tells in her amazing groundbreaking book, Trauma and Recovery, which was published in 1992. She's a contemporary of Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score. They do a lot of research together. And she wrote this book in 1992, all about trauma and trauma survivors. And I think she was like way ahead of her time. And I was reading her book and she tells this story of how Freud was super, super right about childhood sexual abuse until he was devastatingly wrong about it. So in the late, late 1800s, Freud is doing and conducting most of his, his research. He was doing research in Paris. He was doing research in Vienna and he was researching hysteria, which was a pseudo this diagnosis that had been around since like the early like for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and it was named hysteria because it was believed that it was a disease caused by um, the uterus which like in greek is like hysteria or something like that and then in the 1600s people start thinking maybe it's actually not coming from the uterus it's coming from the head then two 200 plus years later freud and his buddies are studying hysteria and hysteria is being diagnosed for all of these reasons. Like hysteria is being diagnosed. If a woman is having like a very strong emotional response, hysteria is being diagnosed. If a woman loses eyesight, hysteria is being diagnosed. If a man calls a doctor and says, my wife is refusing to have sex with me. And so hysteria is this like catch all term for anything that happens only to women um, that happens to women that otherwise like cannot be explained and like sort of has a bunch of sexual undertones. And also is just like, if a woman is sort of like unruly and disagreeable, like it's hysteria. So Freud um, and some of his contemporaries are studying hysteria and Freud has this breakthrough. And this is like, I think this is like, this is late. This is like 1890s. Um, right before the turn of the century. And Freud does something that his peers had not chosen to do, which is actually to listen to the women and ask them about their lives. Like what a novel concept, not to just like observe their symptoms or hear from their husbands (laughs) about how disagreeable they are, but actually to be like, hey, tell me about your life (laughs) and tell me what happened to you in your childhood. And what he kept finding time and time again is that the women who had hysteria had histories of sexual abuse in their childhood. And what he described as like too early of sexual experiences that basically he's describing as like were non-consensual sexual experiences to these young women who were girls. And that when the patients were able to talk about it or recover memories and access it, that there was a relief in their symptoms. And that this first thing that they were coming in for really was just like this side thing. And once he got to the root of it, the root of it was like often sexual abuse. And he goes ahead and he publishes this and he says, listen, hysteria is about sexual violence and sexual abuse. Um, and it was a big, big deal. <laughs> and he yeah. was super spot on. And then a year later, he takes it all back. And what happened in that year that we know from his letters and his personal letters is that he started to realize if he was right, and if what these women were saying was true, 
that hysteria is so extremely common that he would have to contend with the fact that this meant all the fancy bourgeois Viennese families had sexual abuse in their families and that he had to contend with the fact that this was an epidemic of sexual violence. And that was so politically, socially unacceptable to him that he came to the conclusion that he could simply put not trust women anymore. And as Judith Herman puts it, he stops listening to his women patients. And that's when then we start seeing these theories of Freud about like, oh, your dreams mean this. And it means you have these secret sexual desires. And it's still like the impact is still so significant today because how many times do we hear like offhand comments in in social settings or or like in movies and stuff of people being like, oh, Freud, you just want to let you're just like sexually attracted to a family, you know, like a parent. And it's like, that's that's like. No, like (laughs) these are all distractions from us talking about the thing that matters. And I think that it really, um, there's such a, an interesting point here of, of my work and your work, which is talking about how political diagnoses really are because he got it right. And then he, for political reasons, chose to believe that half the population was just lying and hysteria stayed in the DSM until 1980 as a valid diagnosis. Well, that's when I was reading that part. And thank you for uh, really laying this out for our listeners, because, and I will put a link in the show notes to that article as well that you wrote. Um, That blew my mind because there was also, um, I think being gay was in the DSM as a disorder until 1973. I don't, don't quote me on the exact uh, year, but And then I read this and I'm like, oh my God. So until the 1980s, the politically put together DSM still thought that this wandering uterus hysteria disorder that only women have for this reason still was a a diagnosable disorder. And right somebody, until right? 1980. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know, you know, in the 70s, if people were still being diagnosed with it, but certainly I know people in the 50s were. Um, and it wasn't that long ago. And I think that, you know, we try to talk about these things as though they're apolitical, but um, but while sexual violence happens, you know, across the spectrum, across across cultures, across regions, across geography, across communities. Um, the way we talk about it, the way we understand it is inherently political. Um, you know, one in four girls and one in six boys are estimated to experience sexual violence before their 18th birthday. And yet we can't really talk about that. And and Freud and the story of Freud feels really relevant today because it 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 really illustrates what are some of the barriers to us being able to even have these conversations yeah and that's that's mind blowing to me because just this whole idea of the one in 4 one in 6 right yeah. i'm i'm also uh i've never really labeled myself as a survivor of a childhood sexual abuse but i have uh, had sexual abuse in my childhood and it wasn't until maybe 10, 15 years ago that I started to put together the puzzles, right? And mm-hmm. uh, during our lives, we we have a large puzzle to assemble called my life. And, and you know, I've been working on it. And suddenly I was like, oh, wait a minute. So it was right, right around 
I think when the Me Too movement happened, there's something mm-hmm. happened in me where I was like, wait a minute, but I'm kind of part of that too. You know, yes, I'm a man, but it sort of woke me up. And so I, the one in four, one in six might actually be more like two in four, two in six, if more adults down the road realize, oh, now I feel something, see something, remember something. Um, right. I mean, a lot of people don't. Really... Yeah. And I, and I will say like in my, in my neck of the woods, sort of, you know, in my healing, honestly, online community of like 500,000 survivors, overwhelmingly are people who came to the understanding of what happened to them in adulthood. And I think that that's like a really significant misconception about the way sexual trauma, trauma works in our brains, the way our brains work on trauma, um, is that it's really common to go through your life one way. And then whether it's experiencing a different trauma in adulthood, or sometimes it's, it's moving and changing and being in a different space, um, that it can trigger this primary trauma. And it's really disorienting because it leaves you screaming like, what, why now? What is happening to me? But it's actually quite, quite common. And, you know, I support survivors, some are in their sixties and seventies who are just now sort of having those aha moments of, of really understanding what has been happening sort of in their minds and bodies to some degree, their whole lives. And, And to people who are experiencing that, I always say like, it takes the time it's supposed to take. And I think that, you know, as with everything in survivorship, there are so many forces out there trying to make people feel ashamed and like it's wrong the way it shows up for them. But I think that, you know, it reveals itself to us in different ways at different times in our lives. And it's not a linear experience. And so, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I do think the Me Too movement was an enormous time. My my website traffic exploded. And I once even made this graph for this conference that literally showed like <laughs> the different um, the different major articles and moments and how the traffic on my site would explode um, with each of them. And it was really people going to the articles about traumatic memory and about, is it possible for me to have experienced this without having clear memories? And to answer that question really briefly is like, yes, definitely. And you're in a really great company. Um, But yeah, and I would say to that too, over half my readership online is men. Um, And I think that there's this huge misconception about who a survivor is. And, you know, I am a... um, for those of you who can't see me, I'm a white woman and I'm a cisgender heterosexual woman and I was harmed by a cisgender heterosexual man. And I think that that's a, that um, narrative of harm is like, is like very like what we think of when we think of like this harm, but um, that's really, it's really limiting us and it's really leaving too many people out of the conversation. I mean, frankly, if we talk about who is most vulnerable to sexual abuse, um, in 2012, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a study that said gender non-conforming kids are six times more likely to be sexually abused than their gender conforming kid appears. So it's, it's, it's queer and trans kids who are like really, really vulnerable, um, to harm and to this kind of abuse. So anyway, all that goes to say is like, um, yes, it's extraordinarily common And I don't care whether people use the term survivor or victim or whether they claim childhood sexual abuse. You know, in the first pages of my book, I say, like, I use these terms because 
I'm a writer and I need some words for convenience sake <laughs> to like refer yeah. to this. But those words mean very different things to each of us. And I have no interest in, in, in legislating what they mean. Um, you know, we all come to them, but I think the thing that matters and the thing that I'll say to you, Roman, is like your pain is real and your pain counts regardless of what yeah. you call it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in my case, going back to your point of what we think of what, what sexual abuse is, in my case, uh, in one of the cases, I mean, I was 13, I believe, and this woman that seduced me, if you call it that, she was 21, you know, and at that age, as a boy, uh, I didn't think anything of it. It was like feminine energy. It felt great. It was like, oh, okay, I guess, yay, this was good. And you're you know? socialized to think that that's really cool. Exactly. You know? And then I grew up in Europe where you have all these uh, French movies and others too, but the French oh were really God, good. Oh my God, the Lolila of it all. Right? Yeah. And Oof. so for me, I wasn't like a big deal until I think it was uh, at the time a friend pointed it out is only a few years back. And he says, you know, that's yeah. sexual abuse. And I was like, well, I mean, not really. And the not really is what woke me up. I was like, well, what do, what do you mean not really? It either mm -hmm. is or isn't. And so, um, yeah, so I totally agree with you. Now, I love that you mentioned um, Bessel van der Kolk. I interviewed him mm -hmm. as well. And he's just a, you know, The Body Keeps the Score is a great book. And that brings me to the, the ACE studies that was done in the 90s where uh, uh, children with one or multiple ACEs, right, the uh, uh, adverse childhood experiences, uh, mm -hmm. were more likely to later in life uh, be diagnosed with a mental disorder or get in trouble or do drugs or, you know, sort of that, that, that kind of track in life. How, how have you seen, you've worked with so many survivors. Um, how does that show up? How do mental disorders, diagnoses, talk a little bit about that. How do you encounter that? Um, yeah, I think it manifests in really different ways um, in large part because um, childhood sexual abuse or CSA is so extremely common as we talked about. And so, you know, even I've, I've, I've worked with, um, twins, twins who were harmed by the same person in their family who went through the same thing and their responses and reactions and sort of manifestation of the trauma were completely different from one another. One had very vivid memories of what happened and one didn't, for example. Um, and sort of their mental health diagnoses were also different. And so, you know, there are so many different ways that trauma manifests itself in us and around us. Um, and so, you know, for me personally, I was diagnosed with PTSD well before I understood my sexual abuse. Um, I was diagnosed with PTSD because my chosen father, my stepfather died when I was 20 and I watched and I, I took care of him, helped take care of him at the end of his life. And, and I was diagnosed with PTSD then, but it was another three, four, five years until I understood that that was also a second trauma that triggered a primary trauma of my abuse in childhood from a different person. And so I think that sometimes the diagnosis comes before the understanding of what happens. And I have noticed that's really common in a lot of survivors I support, um, whether those diagnoses are things like um, disordered eating or um, anxiety disorders or PTSD and things like that. And um, and I think a lot of times, you know, where I meet survivors, there's, it's it's really a double-edged sword. They're um, relieved 
to understand like, oh, this is really what's been happening to me. And this is also what, like, you know, I've been in therapy for these mental illnesses and these diagnoses, but like, this is why we're not, you know, getting to where we need to go. Cause there's this underlying trauma. And at the same time, I've also seen people who find diagnoses to be uh, destigmatizing and, and liberating for them to be like, okay, I have a name for like, why my brain isn't working the way I want it to, you know, and, and all that. And so, you know, I definitely think there are things like borderline personality disorder, BPD, um, where that was diagnosed for years and now is really understood to be a diagnosis that um, very often is, is um, diagnosed to childhood sexual abuse survivors. And that's, and that's a, sorry, okay, go I was going to say, and, and, and I've supported survivors through receiving that diagnosis. Um, and it's really hard for them because there is extraordinary stigma around that diagnosis to the point where there are plenty of therapists who will not treat people with borderline because, and take them as patients because they've been taught to believe it's untreatable. Um, you know, thus leaving yeah. patients and often CSA survivors without, you know, healing resources that they're seeking. And, and so, you know, I do think that we're starting to understand more, um, chicken and egg, like <laughs> which came first, right? The, you know, uh, and, um, and I, and I've just, you know, I notice it anecdotally as a survivor advocate and, um, member of this community, just having conversations with my friends about our diagnoses. Yeah. No, it's so much. Oh my God. You said so many great things. I just want to make sure I remember this one thing you said, which I think is brilliant that often the diagnosis comes before we understand what's going on. And I think that's important to point out because, and I've uh, sort of learned this along the way as well during my now seven years of research in ADHD, is that when often a diagnosis is given and later we realize, oh, the child was going through a really rough divorce or, oh, you know, in some cases, oh, there was childhood sexual abuse. And, you know, yes, we can never really quite separate and identify the one thing as the cause, right? I say there's no one cause for for right. any mental disorder. But I love what you said right. because I feel that like, you know, a, a split personality or bipolar, any of those those uh, disorders, as they call them, I believe are due to some kind of splitting up of the self of like, I can't be here. Unsafe, oh my gosh. Just so dissociative right? identity disorder, also like people yeah. call it dead because DID yep. um, is like absolutely a result of trauma. And, yeah. you know, I have a disassociative disorder. I don't have disassociative identity disorder, which is sort of, um, I have, um, my version of it is that I disassociate for kind of hours, but, um, what does but that not, look like by the way? Um, checking out, checking it's, out? yeah, it's mostly a feeling. Um, I can feel I'm not in my body and I look at my hands and I'm like, those our hands aren't my hands. Mm. And I think that I have trained myself to mask it. Um, nearly my whole life. And so what I have learned is when I observe that I'm disassociating, the most important thing for me to do is to tell someone because they'll never know. Um, do you even know what, the people what causes closest it? to me. Like, yeah. 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 So when it it's for me, 
the best way I can describe it in like lay For you, people yes, terms. I mean, we'll yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, not yeah. in like a not in like a neurological way. <laughs> right. It, shit is too much. It's too much. And um so when life uh, gets yeah. when there's too much. It's happening. not just life, it's trauma specific. So when my trauma triggers me and I'm going through, you know, and and trigger has nowadays kind of lost its meaning, but I use it in like a medical term. I still like it. Yeah. yeah, So I, when I talk about being triggered, what I'm talking about is my nervous system getting overrun, going into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn mode, Mm -hmm. um, and going into what can be described as a survival mode. And so where my body has learned and my mind has learned to go into this very, uh, primary space for me of like, this is danger. And what happens when a trauma survivor is triggered, it's not that they are remembering the past, but rather they are reliving the past. And that's really important. It's not a mental state of reliving necessarily. It is, but it's also a physiological reliving. So your body is literally going through the motions of maybe who you were 30 years ago at the worst moments of your life. And so something will trigger me and a tr- and you know like i'm thinking about when, when i used to wait tables and there'd be a song that would come on and the song was playing during some of my abuse and and so i go into a full trauma trigger and i go into like fight fight freeze mode but here i was in the middle of this busy restaurant and i couldn't i there was no time for me to handle the, my emotions and so the coping mechanism that would happen is that i would disassociate yeah. Because it was so excruciating and dangerous to be in my body. It was truly dangerous for yeah. me to be connected to my body in that moment that I left it yeah. until it was safe for me to return to it again. And that's great. And I think you said the two two keywords here is the coping mechanism. And then you said yeah. feeling safe, right? Yes. So when we don't feel safe or when we're uncomfortable at a higher level, uh, we need to check out. We want to check out. We don't want to be there in that moment. So we, we, we choose our not choose, but the coping mechanism that we've become used to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important to note, like, it's not a decision, you know, like these are things that happen in a really primary autopilot. We don't get to choose whether we fight, flight, freeze, or fawn when we're triggered. Like these, these decisions happen deep below where our brains can control it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's the same uh, from my research, my experiences with ADHD. It's like, you don't think about like, oh, you know what? It is kind of boring math. I want to look for a squirrel out there or or I want to look around the room for some, right? It just so it's like this reflex, right? It's totally total reaction. Totally. And I, and yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, like other people who are neurodivergent um, in their own ways, like I learned that that happening was useful in some ways. Right. And then, and, and so I don't, I don't like to shame anybody for their coping mechanisms. And that the same, cause like, for example, in that restaurant, whether like I was, what, what am I going to go get myself fired and like lose right. it on the floor, you know? Right. No. And so in the sense, like that coping mechanism was useful, but if I don't then tell someone what's going on, somebody trusted, and build space for me to come back into my body when I am safe, when that shift yeah. is over and I'm back home, then it gets into a really sticky territory. Yeah. You know, like sometimes I just got to disassociate for a couple hours and it's not really a choice, but I know it's happening and I see it's happening. And I'm like, you know, part, the part of healing is being like, I'm not going to judge myself over that. And 
I'm going to have to, when I can, and it's safe, reconnect yeah, and come yeah. back into my body, you know? Absolutely. And one of the things that I think we're sort of getting to is this idea of, obviously, your book is called Healing Honestly. And I'd love to talk about your healing process, because if we're not healing, right, you can say, I disassociate a lot. And then I talk to somebody trusted, I come back. But at the same time, in parallel, if one is not working on processing and healing those traumas that are in the body and the psyche, and the, you know, we don't even go spiritual, but it's in in all of us, right? Or in all parts of us. Um, if we don't do the healing alongside, then we're going to be sort of a slave to the constant trigger, uh, coping mechanism, disassociation, and you're back to okay. And then you get triggered again, you know? So maybe you can share about like, when when did you really when did you realize okay i need to actively heal that and you know before you even wrote the book but and how did you start yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. so for me i had sort of a i think it, it it was slowly and then all at once um where i was in therapy and and dealing and processing and then um i had this time where my trauma it was really bad in my personal life. And I was dealing with a lot of come to re like reckoning and accountability within my own family. And I was in a workplace where I was working in a reproductive rights organization and my male CEO was harassing me and behaving in a, a really emotionally abusive, um, wildly unethical way. And it was kind of mirroring the abuse that I was trying to heal from, from my childhood and it all blew up all at once. And I, I, I think from that, you know, it, all of my coping mechanisms just broke and stopped working. And I think that that happens for a lot of us when we start doing sort of deeper healing and, and our minds and bodies and spirits are telling us like, we're ready to go further is like, then the things that got us through the day, stop getting us through the day and they break. And it's like, it's like good. Cause it's like, okay, now I can't use these as a crutch anymore, but yeah. it's also like really disappointing. Cause you're like, it would be so helpful to just like fake a smile and pretend I'm okay. And like, you know, and, and, and go on autopilot and numb out. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, and like lean on these like old strategies and when they stopped working is when I had to rebuild another way. And so, you know, it wasn't this, like, I'm ready to like face this and blah, 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 blah. And let me climb this mountain. It was like, I have no other freaking choice. Right <laughs> like, yeah. I have no, I, I only knew how to be this one way. And this one way was not cutting it anymore. <laughs> and so if all of these strategies are broken, learning how to hide my pain, lie about my pain, um, prioritize other people's comfort over my own safety, none of that stuff worked anymore. Like I had to find something else. And that's when I started writing more just for myself and talking more to my friends and meeting other survivors and building community, which has been so critical for me, both personally and you know, and, 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 well, in every sense of my life. And so, yeah, I mean, I think the thing is also, it's so funny because you and I talked about this earlier. There's so much like Instagrammable, like latitudes about healing out there. It's like, yeah. I'm sure you see it in the ADHD world too. It's yep. like, yep. I mean, we were just talking before, like mental health, like 
like influencers and like there is some cool shit on the internet and like there is useful stuff and like sure and also <laughs> there is a lot of nonsense and I think there are like so many I see on Instagram all the time these like quote platitudes about like heal or you're going to like just you know stay in the same cycle heal or you're gonna pass this on to your children and it's like what is this? Like we're threatening people. You better heal or this, but like nobody's defining what heal means right. because nobody can, because it means different things to different people. And it's like, okay, so I know I have to heal. I have no idea what that means <laughs> and what it involves. And I only know if I don't, I'm screwed. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, with my work, I try to really talk about how healing means different things to all of us and that I don't see it as this binary that like you're going from a survivor to a thriver. And I don't think it means you have to drink green juices and do yoga. I don't even think it, you have to necessarily do talk therapy. There's so many forms of therapy that are useful to people. Um, and I think that like <laughs> a lot of us, actually have a lot of wisdom inside of us about what we need, but we've just been conditioned to believe that it's not worthy and valid and trusted. Um, and that if we can reconnect to that, that we actually have a lot of wisdom about what we need healing to mean for each of us. And that's really yeah. what I try to present in my book. That's great. Yeah. I think it starts with a willingness to um, not even, you know, change your patterns first you have to discover them and patterns aren't always obvious uh there's a pattern underneath the unobvious pattern and to find that one i think it's what you're pointing to as well it's like we just have to go about it our own way and every day yeah. every 24 hour stretch is a new day where we can maybe change a habit that's not productive or positive right and keep yeah. going keep going and you have and like keep living your life you know i think that there's this also this misconception that like when we're dealing he with healing work that we need to isolate ourselves and give it like our all like be on like a retreat and like yeah. and like you know not talk to anybody and like and and I have friends who like have radically like have incredible relationships to silent retreats. And so I don't mean anything like that or any knock on that. But I mean like this idea that we're supposed to isolate and focus deeply on our healing. And then we get to live our lives, but like, it has to be integrated into the rest of our lives. Like yeah. people need people <laughs> and we all need people. And so this idea that we would isolate in some way and not cultivate meaningful relationships, meaningful friendships, community with other people, while still honoring our own boundaries and our own needs for privacy, whatever they may be like, that's, that to me is, is, is nonsense. Like we all need right. humans and we also all have to live our lives. Like we can't tag out of the world. And so it's like, how can we hold two truths at the same time, which is that trauma impacts every aspect of our lives and therefore healing does too. And also we are like worthy and entitled to like bold, beautiful, messy, loud lives that we want. And we yeah. don't have to wait to live our lives. That's, that's great. I love that you brought that up because I think it, we're often told that, you know, it's like being the monk on top of a mountain by yourself and meditating. And that looks great and peaceful. But now take that monk down to New York City for the first time and say, okay, now be peaceful now. That's just a different environment. But I believe if we get to true peace or whatever you want to call it, serenity, we can be serene anywhere. And so therefore, totally. since we, we, we are 
human beings that need human beings, right? Connectivity. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you on that. I did a withdrawal for my own kind of addictive behavior around sex yeah. and love and relationships. And it was needed. It was needed to, yeah. to, to meet myself, to pull it off. But it's not something I'm going to keep up for life because it's just not, that's not natural. Right. And I totally, you know. and I think that sometimes our impression of what healing is, it, it can be anything. And so it can be deep moments of reflection, um, intentional isolation, um, meditation, uh, quiet and silence. And it can also be like dancing your ass off at a party and <laughs> feeling like the joy of music running through your bones and like, you know, and, um, and sitting and laughing hysterically until you cry with a friend, you know, like all of those things, like, I think, you know, it, those, the whole spectrum of healing, I think though, the Instagram of it all, I'm telling you, like, I just think people think like they have to go to Bali to find, (laughs) to find that part of themselves. And it's like, I swear, I found more healing on a dance floor at a ABBA um, dance party a couple months ago than I had found in like years. (laughs) I swear, my face covered in glitter, singing Mama Mia with my best friends. Like I found more healing in that moment than I swear anybody has ever found (laughs) on like like a white tourist destination in Bali. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I went to Bali and I didn't find it there, I have to say. Or I went to Costa, Costa Rica. I'm beautiful, you know? I'm sure. But like, yeah. it's a there are a lot of promises out there. And yeah, we don't have to like go to these inaccessible places that, you know, are also very expensive for people and like, and, and isolate ourselves necessarily. You know, like if you have the privilege and the access to that, then like go for it. But I think to me, I think it's more important if I may that we find ways to live in our everyday lives. I mean, you have a family, you know, and, and your family needs you and you need them. And, and it's like, okay, well, how can we figure out in day-to-day lives to create space for reflection and intentionality, you know? And, and I think about that in my marriage too, you know, like, how do I approach my husband, my dog, my family, in a way that is in align with my healing and what I've learned from it. So that might look like, you know, to put that in practical terms, that looks like me swallowing my pride and saying when I need help, that looks like me not waiting for anybody to read my mind about what I need and being able to say explicitly, I need this from you, please. It looks like me practicing with my husband for when I'm triggered and we need a safety plan when I'm okay. So that when I'm not okay, he knows exactly what to do and doesn't wonder. And it also means me being able to say, even though like I need you, I need you to be your own person too. So do you need space to go do your own thing, to connect with your friends, to have your community hold you up right now when I'm struggling because I recognize that your needs get to count too. And so being able to be in relationship with people is both really hard. It's really hard no matter who you are. And also an opportunity to practice like all these things and for us to be able to honor boundaries and honor needs in a way that ours may have never been before. Right. And that, I love that you went to the family because I was going to say next uh, chapter seven in your book 
uh, is entitled, Our Healing Journey Invites Our Families to Heal. I'd love to talk about that. And the reason why is because I'm a big believer that when parents' uh, nervous systems come out of survival mode and when they're, you know, in the parasympathetic state and calm, then the children can co-regulate with that. And so then a condition like ADHD, where it's like not paying attention or being uh, hyperactive, starts to kind of dissolve in that moment. I'm a big believer of that. So maybe you can talk a bit about that, like uh, for survivors of childhood sexual abuse and, yeah. and how that healing affects their families and what you've seen. Absolutely. You know, I think that healing within our family it's it's my favorite chapter of the book it was the most challenging to write it's um it's for me so much of the heart of the matter um and it's really hard because for survivors uh statistically it's most likely that the harm happened within our families of origin and um also it's a place where we often really want healing and also we have to recognize that we can only be responsible for our own healing and we cannot force anyone else in our family to be ready or able to have those conversations with us. And so oh, damn. It, <laughs> I know it creates this really difficult tension where it can be the thing we want the most and yet we can't afford to need it. And, you know, I often ask survivors the question, which is, whose validation do we need and whose validation do we want? Because often for survivors, the people they most desperately want to have validate their pain and their experiences are those families of origin. And those family members have a lot of very self-involved reasons that have nothing to do with the survivor as to why they might deny that reality. They themselves might be responsible for the abuse. They might be complicit in the abuse. They might feel so guilty that they didn't protect the child, that they deny that it ever happened to them. They yep. themselves might be survivors and not ready to do that work and not ready to come to those conversations. There's a million reasons and none of them are, are about the survivor, even though it feels so personal. And so, you know, it's, I have been afforded incredible opportunities of healing within my biological family but that has come from them, you know, and it's come, I've invited them in, but it required them, you know, to decide that they wanted to do their own healing work. And it's why I was so honored when my mom um, offered to be interviewed for the book where she talks about what it was like for her to put herself in therapy and really reflect on her own feelings that she had that were um, coming up for her as she was fought, trying to figure out how to support me. And she didn't put that on me. She did that work herself. And so I say that because it's like the most natural thing in the world to desire. And yet we cannot control it and we cannot force people to want to heal. Um, it has to come from within themselves. We can invite them. We can right. encourage it. We can support it, um, but we can't control it. And so our validation has to lie somewhere else. We have to be able to say, regardless of the motivations for our families to deny us, that our pain is real and worthy of healing and it matters. Um, and so I think, you know, when it comes to healing, I had a real breakthrough writing this book. Um, there's a, a survivor friend who I interview in that chapter named Lourdes Velasco. And Lourdes um, 
told me about how they've been doing a lot of ancestral healing work and that they have been connecting to ancestors past and can feel them with them as they're doing their healing work. And through that conversation, I realized that while I was writing, there were a lot of ancestors known and unknown to me that I felt with me that were healing alongside me. And I think that we're really used to feeling like there's somebody in charge of our family who gets to say who is in the family and who's not in the family. And often it's like a patriarchal figure, but not necessarily, but it's usually somebody like older, you know, and in, in, in control and in yeah. power. And I realized that that doesn't have to be true. And that even for the family that I'm completely estranged from, which is half of my family, um, my paternal family, that even then I was healing parts of that family, whether they liked it or not. And that no one may ever tell me and they might not ever realize it and they might not even realize it ever say anything. And it doesn't matter because when I am healing, I am a part of that lineage and that family and they're coming along with me, whether they like it or not. And so, you know, intergenerational trauma is very real as a Jewish person. I know that well, and, um, and I'm doing my part. And at the same time, I want to say to parents, um, especially parents who are survivors that parents for survivors, I know will, will do anything they can to prevent this happening to their child. And sometimes still it happens. And yeah. I want to say that that doesn't mean that there's still not an opportunity to offer your child love and support and healing through that. Um, because I, I mean, I've seen it up, up close, um, family member, you know, when it's happened intergenerationally. Um, and so I just want to also name that as well. That's yeah, absolutely. I support that. And, you know, like we said, we talked earlier, uh, we can't trauma proof a human being. No, I mean, we oh, could it be great though. <laughs> we could just, bubble wrap them. And I just want to bubble wrap my future child and packing right? tape and bubble wrap and hope for the best, you know, but I have well, to tell you, I think you would appreciate this Roman about what you were saying about co-regulating. <laughs> so I have a dog. His name is Franklin. I call him my miracle child. Um, they said it couldn't be done, but here I am. I mothered him and he's five years old. And I decided last summer, um, in between writing deadlines, I was going to see if I could train Franklin to be a service dog for me, to be a psychiatric service dog. So I hired this fantastic trainer who's trained so many service dogs for veterans and like really used to working with people with PTSD. We worked together for four months. And at the end of the day, <laughs> we had to stop working and stop. It, 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 she was wonderful. Franklin was not fit for the job because what we learned was that I had to be his emotional support animal <laughs> and his service dog. What had happened is that he had grown up. If he had not grown up in my home, he could have done it. He was smart enough. He was eager enough, but he had grown up his whole life watching me have PTSD. Mm. So he couldn't think clearly yeah. when I was having a trigger he was experiencing it with me. Yeah. And it's like he had inherited 
my anxiety and my trauma. So you know how people talk about, oh, when you're crying, your dog comes and like comforts you and licks your face. When I'm crying, my dog goes to my husband and says, comfort me and, and hold me. Yeah. You know, my dog needs to be comforted when I'm not okay. And so to me, yes, it's a dog. And like, no, I don't currently have a human child and please nobody be offended that I'm, I am (laughs) comparing my dog to a human child right now. I know this ridiculous, but dogs are very smart and intuitive. And it was an interesting example of how him growing up around my dysregulation had dysregulated him. Right. And I think that's a perfect example of a being's nervous system being affected by another being's nervous system, right? That's really what this this example is about. And I love that. And I'm going to just kind of take it back to something you said earlier about, you know, families healing is that I was interviewing Gabor Mate at some point and he kind of almost, I don't want to say diagnosed me, but, you know, he's a medical professional And he said to me, we're talking about my ADHD and what was happening with my son. And he said, well, look, you weren't present as a father. You weren't emotionally there. And I Mm. said, true. And he goes, that's tough. You know? Yeah. But I I get that. I get that now. And I said, and then he said, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is to ask how come you weren't emotionally available? Because in our society, what we would tend to do is say, oh, emotionally available men. Oh, let's create a diagnosis. Uh, Emotionally unavailable men, EUM. Great. So you have EUM, right? I'm just joking, but that's what we would do versus how come Roman wasn't able to be emotionally available. And that sent me on a journey of like, okay, what had me not be present? Where was I? Well, Mm -hmm infidelity and the marriage and and addictive behaviors around sex and love and other distractions right and so i was like oh wow no wonder i couldn't be present with my own son my firstborn and then that was like the question was like well why am i like that and i started to you know dig in deeper in my family and all that's when the puzzle pieces started to to put themselves together starting 7 years ago and so i think it's important for our listeners to know that um you know, it's it's easy to say, oh, well, I have this disorder, so I can't be present with my child. The most important question is, why do you think, what, what leads to that behavior that has your nervous system locked in defense mode most of the time? And so that was a big eye-opener for me. And Gabor Mate talks about he was, he was a workaholic, and he talks about his mom raising him in Nazi-occupied Budapest, Hungary, and how, you know, the PTSD and anxiety, it's just all connected and just blows my mind how uh, we tend to just not want to dig deeper. And so my question, you know, my question to you was, you know, you're really playing with fire because sex is a taboo. Sex is a, especially sexual abuse. Nobody wants to really talk about it. They they can say PTSD or even split personality. That's still kind of cool. But once you go to childhood sexual abuse, it's like, oh, I don't want to know about it. I'm going to have nightmares. I just don't want to hear about it. I have kids, right? How do you deal with when you show up in, mm-hmm. in this world for events or when you talk or when you meet people and you throw out the childhood sexual abuse? It's a heavy term, right? The agreement is that it's something ugh, icky, dirty, bad. Uh, how do you deal with that personally? How have you come to just yeah. sort of like, I'm just talking about my thing? 
Yeah, it's a really good question because it comes up a lot. You know, the stigma around CSA, as I as I refer to it, is really profound. And, you know, I should joke, like, I don't tell Uber drivers what I do for work. Um, No, I live in D.C. <laughs> like, I can tell anybody I'm a consultant and nobody's going to ask another question. There like, we go. <laughs> every yep. second person here is some sort of consultant. No, totally. um, I... I, my relationship to it has really evolved over time. I think, you know, to me, the most um, stigma busting aspect of my life has been building community with other survivors. And it's so funny. Everybody thinks when we get together, it'll be like a stone cold bummer, but survivors are some of the funniest people I've ever met in my entire life. As the late, great Carrie Fisher said, if I didn't laugh at my life, it would just be true. And I find that um, unacceptable. <laughs> and I love that quote. Love you know, that. it's yeah. like, yeah. who's the funniest people you know, and compassionate and ready to be there for each other. And you know, and building community with survivors, being welcomed into communities of survivors, um, has been one of the most fortifying and destigmatizing and um, grounding experiences of my life. And so, you know, first and foremost, who I, what I think of when I think of survivors are like these dope ass, funny, incredible, colorful, vibrant people in my life. And, um, and that's really important. And so when I'm with survivors and I'm in community, it feels good. And I think that, you know, not everything is for everyone. There are books that are, you know, that, that everybody assumes I've read because of my job and my field that I never pick up. Cause I'm like, this is going to trigger the hell out of me. You know, there are documentaries that people watch, you know, people are like, Oh, you watch the R. Kelly documentary or the Jeffrey Epstein trial. You followed all that stuff. And I'm like, absolutely not. You know, I, I know survivors who do, but for me, you know, that there are spaces that, and, and ideas and things that I know for my own self-preservation and the way that my trauma shows up for me, that, that those aren't right, but that's different than stigma. <laughs> that's, that's about, you know, managing it, it, it the day-to-day for myself. Um, but the stigma is really interesting. I was at this medical conference and I was somebody's plus one there and there were all these doctors there and they're in their fifties and sixties. And they asked me what I did for work. And I said, you know, I'm a, I'm a childhood sexual abuse survivor advocate is what I said. And I decided to be honest. Cause I was like, they're doctors. <laughs> One guy goes, Oh, that's a bummer. And I said, not really. I'm one of them. <laughs> you know, people <laughs> always say that too. And it's like, hello, what? I'm standing like, like, like I, I am she she is me like and then I was like not really you know like like I I I do this I'm a survivor it's a be- and I always say it's funnier than you think it's a better time than you think and then he's like let's go get a drink and then peeled off and I could feel some of his shame on me mm. and I and I had to look at my husband and say wait, that was messed up. Right. And like, that was on him because even though I had been doing this work for years, sometimes other people's shame feels borderline contagious. And you just have to remember the shame that we feel as survivors is actually not ours to hold. It's other people's shame that they're trying to impose upon us. Yeah. And so when somebody tries to like say something stigmatizing about my work or, um, or about me and my friends, I have to remember um, 
that that is them living in a world steeped in rape culture and that they haven't done any of the work to unpack that in the slightest. And that's a real shame. And I encourage them that too, because they're absolutely survivors in their lives, but it's not my problem. And, you know, I know in my core, I have nothing to be ashamed of. And that when I feel that way, it is somebody else trying to impose their nonsense onto me. And that's not any of my business. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I love that pun intended, right? That's their shame. And uh, they get to work through that. And, you know, it's interesting because I feel like when we talked about the DSM and, and hysteria being still in part of the DSM until the 80s, you know, we wonder, like, what else is currently still in the DSM that should be taken out, such as like, when you remember when cigarette smoking was promoted by doctors and you know, there's other examples of that, but it's like, we always think in the moment, like science and medicine, we've got to figure it out. This is the truth. And then 20 years later, oh, we were wrong. Sorry. Um, I just don't think it's a matter of them actually taking 20 more years to get the right studies. I think it takes 20 years for them to come down off the high horse and to actually admit that, yes, maybe we did sort of hide it or, you know, so do you feel around, let's just say in general, trauma that there's still how do you feel about that how do you feel we are the the psychiatry psychology medicine uh, uh you know i don't want to lead the witness but do you think that perhaps we know more or they know more than we're told you know i i don't have a i don't necessarily have a sense about that i do think that you know there's sort of the the larger institutions that are really slow to change and slow to move. And then there are people working, um, some of who quite prominent to advance that, you know, I think about Judith Herman, Dr. Judith Herman, again, advancing the diagnosis of complex PTSD, which is not yet in the DSM, but really captures, you know, for what CSA survivors, for example, go through, which is that for us, trauma was not like some singular event. Um, trauma was gears of our lives and impacts every single aspect of our health and well-being. And we need to encapsulate that, not as like some singular event. Um, and PTSD, for example, is still heavily treated and understood within the context of a combat veteran. Yet statistically, it's more likely in the U.S. that somebody with PTSD is actually an abuse survivor and not somebody who experienced combat. And so, you know, I look to people like that who are advancing the conversation and advocating and, um, and then I see how slow, you know, institutions are to move, but, you know, speaking of psychology specifically, I mean, um, all through the eighties, I mean, and we're still feeling the impact of it. There was this organization called the false memory syndrome foundation led by, um, Peter Frey and his wife, whose name is escaping me. And he was a mathematician and his wife was a homemaker and a teacher and their daughter, Dr. Jennifer Frey, who's a renowned psychologist and the founder of the, um, Institute for courage. Um, she came forward about her CSA to them that he had harmed her. And they created this false memory syndrome foundation saying that therapists were planting ideas in these so-called survivors heads that 
that these recovered memories were quote unquote false memories. This diagnosis had no medical backing whatsoever, and yet they recruited scientists and doctors to serve on their board. Their, most of their supporters were parents whose children had accused them of CSA. And I mean, now we can talk about it and it sounds like absolutely nonsensical, right? And being like, this is so radically transparent. Like it's so obvious that this was just parents who were abusive trying to yeah. control the narrative and do it in the field of psychology, but they didn't disband until like, I think three or four years ago. Wow. And their impact is still being felt today. Um, before their work, uh, Catherine Beckett, who at the time was at the University of Michigan, did the study and, and it found that before the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, that in news articles, when CSA survivors would talk about recovered memories, um, they were generally believed. And then afterwards, wow. the vast majority of coverage for decades mentions that the, that it was possible that these memories were false. Well, that takes and us right back to the, the Freudian area, right? Precisely, Where, which is it's entirely like, political and it's yeah. entirely political motivation, but it has seeped into the psychology war. I mean, they called these in the 90s, they called the 90s the memory wars because there were psychologists on either side of this. And I mean, and it and it 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 got quite nasty in my understanding too. And and now, you know, we can look back and be like, that was such a blatant attempt to just like silence survivors and vilify therapists who were treating survivors in a trauma-informed way. But at the time, you know, it, I mean, we're still feeling the impact today. I still have survivors come to me and say, my therapist said that maybe my memory, I have false memories. And it's like, that's not a thing. That's not a thing. That's, well, that's not a thing. Science has now proven that's not a thing. Right. And that's gaslighting. And it's like, but the impact is still like, is still there. And so, you know, I say that to be like, yes, I'm hopeful that we're moving in the right direction. And it's like, but these are really, really slow, gigantic institutions. And I think what makes me hopeful is seeing the prominence of more trauma-informed folks who are interested in listening to survivors and interested in hearing from us and interested in our lives and our reality. And, you know, hopefully everyone will be listening to survivors more. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, that's just shocking. When I say amazing, I mean shocking. And yeah. it bring it brings up an issue that it's perhaps more personal, but because we're we we went there and no pressure or no hard feelings if yeah. you'd rather not discuss it. But something that's been brought to my attention recently around this, you know, if we're talking about childhood sexual abuse, is there's a new term float a new term floating around called maps. I don't know if you've heard of it. Uh when I spell it out for our listeners, I mean, when I, when somebody spelled it out oh, for me first, it's basically it's a, a minority attracted persons. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that's to, something, uh, frankly, I can't touch at this time. Yeah. Um, I just, yeah. I mean, I think for me, I will say this: that you know, my piece of the puzzle has always been just talking to other survivors and talking about healing and talking about what happened or not what happened, but, but the what now of it all. Mm -hmm. And I think included in that, you know, I have friends in this field who are doing extraordinary work around understanding more about the why and why sexual abuse happens um, and delving into that. And I'm so grateful for their work. 
Yeah. And at the same time, it's work that I can't touch, you yeah. know, and yeah. it's the same reason I don't work with kids. You know, I thought going into this field, oh my gosh, I have to work with children. It's like, no, no, I don't. Um, it's yeah. in my piece of the puzzle is really separate from that um, because it needs to be just yeah. for me. Yeah. And so I, I think it's a valid question. I just, it's a road, you know, talking about sort of why people sexually abuse children is uh, such an important conversation and so essential yeah. and not one that I would ever shut down um, for any reason, except just to say, like, it's something that I personally um, can't access in this moment. Right. Yeah. And I think, and, and, and the reason I didn't want to go into details about yeah. that, but the reason why like for me, how I look at it is, again, the important question is not so much, oh, I'm just a person who is attracted to minors and end it there, right? It's more like, no, people who have that issue or that, let's just call it, they don't even call it a disorder, but I think they're going to try to. It's like, why is that that way? Why is that happening? Because I just do not believe, and I know this is a personal opinion, but I don't believe it's natural or it's just at birth, you're assigned that thing. And so I agree with you that we need to do a lot of work in trying to look into the psyche of, of humanity, of humans, and why that happens and why yeah. there's that driver, right? And and heal that from the individual inside out so we can heal it in our society. But it starts with one person at a time. Like you said, healing is different to every person. And we're, we're still trying to sort of make it seem like a one size fits all just totally. heal, right? Totally. And, and, and the same goes for prevention, you know, like we don't, and it's why I support, you know, these conversations too, is like, um, even though I don't participate in them is because, you know, <sighs> sending people to prison does not prevent childhood sexual abuse. Yes. And in agree. fact, it perpetuates sexual violence. And how could the um how could the treatment or prevention be the thing itself? Um, yeah. the perpetuation of sexual violence, you know, and so it's like I know psychologists who've tried to delve into these questions um and gotten a lot of flack for it, but it's like uh, prison isn't the answer. <laughs> prison right. doesn't make, you know, it doesn't make our, our world safer. If it did, God, none of this would exist anymore. Nobody incarcerates right. people more than the United States. So, um, so yeah, I think that they're really important difficult questions and conversations that people need to be having about what healing looks like for all people and what they yep. need. Um, and being able to access that in a way that centers everyone's safety. Yeah. And I just want to acknowledge you again for writing the book and also for the voice for our listeners. I don't think I've ever read a book uh, in psychology or around any kind of trauma, especially sexual abuse, that has such a uh, a beautifully uh, uh, raw, honest voice, an unapologetic voice. That's my first acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. The second one is that I just feel like you you are a sex positive person. I just want to point that out. You're not somebody who went into this thinking, okay, we got to abstinence. We got to like cut down on the, the sex in the world. Like, you know, because again, like you said, prisons aren't the answer. I believe abstinence isn't the answer or shaming or any of those things. So I just, that's my second acknowledgement. I appreciate that you kept your sex positivity for lack of a better term throughout this book. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for point for saying that Roman. So the 
to write this book, I wrote a sample chapter and a, and a book proposal. And then my agent and I took it around and I didn't think twice about what my sample chapter would be in the sample chapter at the time was tentatively called, and now it's, it's a variation of it, but it was tentatively called we're having too much sex. And we're also not having enough sex, just like this dichotomy that survivors feel like whatever amount of sex they want or, or don't want is somehow quote unquote wrong. And my, the person who became my editor, Charlotte Ashlock later after I signed my book deal, she goes, so tell me about that choice for your, 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 um, your sample chapter to send around was about sex. And I was like, I never thought anything of it. Of course it was. And she's like, I figured you did that as desk to see <laughs> you know, if, if editors could hang, uh, yeah. with, with, you know, this, this, um, this chapter about sex and they could hang it with everything else. But yeah. So I, I love that you, that you highlight that and you speak on that, you know, and I think, there's so much stigma and shame around sex and healing. And I think that so often, especially from like a clinical standpoint in the way that uh, like therapists and doctors write and talk about CSA survivors, it's like that our sexual desire or lack thereof is seen as a symptom of our abuse and not as a part of our healing. And I really deeply resent that because I do think, yes, of course it impacts our sexual selves. And also it can be a part of our healing too, whether it's intentionally abstaining, which I have explored with, or whether it's banging a bunch of people, which I have also done, you know, like I have found healing in, in my sexual self, um, in both desiring and not desiring sex. And it's like, we need to acknowledge that, that all of it is okay. And and we don't need to feel shame for the way our trauma impacts us. And also for the ways that sex might or might not be a part of our healing. Um, and I think that just gets glossed over far too often. Yeah. So I really appreciate you highlighting that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was very present to that. And that made it also more digestible and and easier to read for me, you know, because I think I have that same kind of struggle a bit of like, there's the desires and then there's like the the shame or the guilt and all that stuff that I'm processing through and healing through. So I just wanted to point that out. Totally. Um, but yeah, it's been a pleasure uh, diving into this, you know, fairly uh, hot topic and and also heavy topic. And you made it super uh, entertaining, very insightful, educational, fun, and and light in a, in a in a in a hopeful way that there is hope for all of us to to heal our own traumas and to do it our way, right? That's absolutely, absolutely. I'm so grateful to get to have this conversation with you and. And, you know, I always feel that there's generally um, an expectation going into it, whether it's I'm, I'm speaking on a college campus or at a book event or, or just an interview that the, it's it's going to be like important, but hard. And I just <laughs> like to say, like, we get to bring our whole selves to these conversations, you know, and um, and be our whole selves and that. Hopefully, you know, folks who've stuck it in there and stuck in and, and are still here with us that you see like that, that these topics can be a lot more approachable and accessible than maybe we have previously felt them to be. And maybe even a little bit of a better time than we expected. <laughs> so and I'm really grateful to get to have the conversation with you. Thank you. Yeah. And they're part of our lives, right? And especially if they're part of our individual lives or specific lives, then they're here. 
and we can, you know, pretend they're not here and avoid looking at them or dealing with or healing them, right? But that's not going to, that's what is that old saying? What what we per, resist persists. So, um, and I'm going to put a link uh, in the show notes, uh, obviously to your website, to the book. So where people can get the book and the article that, uh, that I found that led me to you so that our listeners can check that all out. And I look forward to maybe doing a 2.0 down the road. You never know. And appreciate you being Love here. Love that. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure.